Route Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. One of the great things about the university here is the vibrancy uh, of the student body. I mean, it's true of all universities, I suppose, but what I really enjoy about Kingston is the collegiality of the interaction between staff and students and how the students' ambitions for their school uh, have been expressed over the two years uh, that I've been working here. Um, I'm particularly glad to see them getting involved in directing their own cultural programme under the title of KARC. And this uh, podcast interview, in fact, is one that KARC organised themselves. Uh, our interviewers today would be Kate Iveson, who's a master's student here and president of KARC, and Dan Ryder-Cook, who's a third-year student um, and who has a previous degree in physics and who is also part of the KARC team. In this interview, they talk with Amin Taha, the London architect, about the evolution of his practice, one which is based in an engagement with the potentials of contemporary technology, one which seeks in this new means by which the language of architecture and the histories of architecture might be interrogated in means sometimes playful, sometimes more uh, rigorous, but always compelling in their material presence and their formal coherence. In this discussion, Kate and Dan talk to Amin about the, uh, how this practice came into being and how his thinking has evolved in architecture over the last 12 to 13 years. I do hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Okay, so firstly, I just wanted to welcome you, Amin Taha, to the first KARCH podcast with Register. And KARCH is the Kingston Architecture Student Society that was set up just over a year ago, and we wanted to get students involved in a bigger architectural discourse than just their uni bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really excited to have you here, and thank you for coming. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Cool. So um, I'm Dan, who's here with Kate, um, also from KARCH. And one of the first kind of questions to set the scene that we wanted to ask you was, um, I guess any enterprise or practice is basically a group of people getting together with a common aim or agenda. Um, and we were kind of wondering, what was that for you when you set your practice up? And also kind of how has that evolved over time? Well, I, 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 I've been working at Zars at the time. And um, I think uh, this is an, was a time when the office was about 25 people. There wasn't a great deal of cash um, in the office and you'd occasionally get paid maybe you know, once every three months. And it'd always be late and not enough. And uh, I thought, quite honestly, I may as well do some of my own work in, in the interim. And then um, ultimately, um, if you're not going to get paid that much, you may as well not get paid much um, working on your own. <laughs> so that was the original, <laughs> that was the original agenda. And then somebody actually uh, won a couple of competitions. I thought, well, I may as well carry on on my own then, as opposed to going back. When was that? Ooh, uh, it was a bit of a transition because instead of being entirely on my own, I, I had one foot in uh, muff architecture and art, mm-hmm. the lives of Fior and others. So I think I was actually doing about 90% <laughs> their work of my time. And, and I think it probably took about a year and a half, so that was about 2002, 2003. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really, I don't suppose I was totally properly independent or not needing to incorporate a practice with PI and all the rest of it until somebody actually said, right, here's, you know, you've got the job, you've got to actually get your PI sorted and all the rest of it uh, until about 2005. <laughs> okay, I mean, so one of the 
we thought one of the things we really like to do is kind of just unpack some of your projects. Um, mm. And one of the ones which um, we found kind of particularly interesting was your 168 Upper Street, um, the, mm. the shop for Aria. Um, mm. Maybe for the listeners of the podcast, you kind of quickly explain the overall is. scheme yeah. and what's going on there. Yeah. Um, so it's a, um, it's a, the missing piece of a, of a once um, intact, uh, fairly weak uh, Victorian Palladian terrace. Uh, the end piece got bombed during the war and it stayed empty until um, our client bought it and ran a short competition which we won and uh, uh, we'd already looked at similar sort of projects in the past and won a couple, a couple of competitions with similar sort of themes which is essentially bits of building that have gone missing either through war or something else uh, so it raises those questions of do you rebuild, how do you rebuild, why do you rebuild uh, so it's um, remembering, misremembering, monument building so I wanted to ask you about that. You yeah. you talk about misremembering, yeah. and I guess in some sense when you see like a neoclassical architecture, it's kind of seeking to evoke some right. values of antiquity or something. But in misremembering, what are you trying well, to Well, yeah, it's interesting you talk about, um, I mean, you have to remember with, with classical architecture, neoclassical, etc., it's it's ultimately the, um, the the conversion of temple building or the, um, the making use of temple architecture, domestic architecture, or some other institutional um, accommodation, brief program, whatever. Um, and then every generation playing with that. The difference between, say, the Renaissance and then the neoclassical is that uh, the Renaissance, people are quite happy, free to play with that, uh, make it quite plastic, uh, the neoclassical uh, is part of, I think, is part of that Winkelmann Enlightenment period where it actually becomes a proper style. It actually gets conflated with um, a moral purpose and is then uh, reproduced as a template again and again and again. Um, how does that relate to memory, misremembering? Well, I suppose the neoclassical or the classical is an interpretation of the past again and again. I don't want to say regurgitating, but perhaps errors. Is it errors in, in, in the proportions? It's more sort of uh, playing with those proportions to make them fit. And that's why I say the, the, the Victorian version of the Palladian is actually quite weak. Because mm. all they've done really is, is, is spread it very thinly uh, as a two-dimensional idea. Mm. Uh, um, I'm not even sure it's it's worthy of the same um, definition when I when, when we talk about uh, memory and misremembering. There, what we're what we're suggesting is that uh, when we um, it's more related to monument uh, construction. So uh, deliberately creating a narrative that uh, is meant to provoke or in the reader of a monument an idea. Uh, so it's really culturally strong. But it's flawed ultimately. Mm. So when we say a misremembering, it's a deliberate or accidental, more deliberate often than not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how do you how do you express that in the building without without it being just um, a sort of verbatim copy of what was there? Um, if you're being critical about the idea of a monument building and narratives, flawed narratives. So I, I sort of I wondered with that kind of misremembering term whether what you were 
what that building does a little bit as well as a lot of your other buildings is it kind of it awakens the passerby in yeah. it. like it offers a certain amount of surprise and I wondered if like it was trying to evoke you to be a bit more critical or like knowing that the past is not necessarily as we have it presented of to course, us or something exactly like that. that's exactly it yeah. to some degree that's the advantages of using those sort of languages of the past that to some people they walk past and they in their peripheral vision it's just they delight or they um, uh, they, if you like, um, accept it just in their peripheral vision and experience. To others, you might then stand um, in front of it. There's a German expression for monuments, or German word for monument, called Denkmal, which the literal translation is think, one think. Yeah? You <laughs> think about it. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Look at me and think. Uh, and that's ultimately what, what that's about, what it's about. It's standing in front of it and then noticing, slowly but surely, perhaps on the second visit, there are parts of it that are deliberately, um, there are deliberate errors in it, and then questioning all why there's, why are there deliberate errors in it? Okay, that, that, that makes sense, because I was kind of wondering, I know you talked about it in terms of like, this term skeuomorphism, or this kind of ornamental cues that mm. you, that it gives you, and I kind of wondered a bit about why, say, why you elected for those kind of cues of ornament and form to do that job? rather than say, I don't know, like a figure like Giorgio Grassi, who's got a very abstracted mm. classicism yeah. instead. Like kind of how was that decision arrived at? Yeah. I think for us it was uh, partly in the making of it. And the making is not just uh, literally the construction, but actually uh, thinking from the outset um, how it's going to be made, um, and then through that process of how it's how you design it and how you make it, where um, errors or plays in that language can occur, and if those are enough. Might if I mean at one point we thought they might be too subtle, uh, but we could have easily carried on with those and uh, and and uh, it would have been subtle at all, but without inventing a new language at all. Yeah. So really, it's, it's, it's a scan of the exact opposite building. So it's a mirror, because it's ultimately Palladium and therefore the mirror pavilion. So it's an absolute perfect scan of the building opposite, uh, then taken in a, in a CAD model, cleaned up, because um, ultimately that scan actually scanned pigeons and all the rest of it <laughs> at the same time, went through windows and scanned the people in the window. <laughs> Not tempted to leave a pigeon in. Well, we were, we were. Uh, <laughs> But we thought, well, let's clean up, see how hard it is to start off with before we, we, we leave pigeons in there. And then realising, okay, once we've got the scan, we've cleaned up the model. Uh, ideally, it's broken up into parts that relate to the um, scale of day pores and formwork. So that tells us quickly how, how many blocks we have to break that model up into that then gets sent off for routing or the rest of it. Uh, well, if we have so many blocks, Maybe those blocks can be reversed, as if we've sent them accidentally a day, a day, a week early. They've arrived on site a, a week early or a week late, etc. They're turned upside down, etc. So there's a number of errors that can can occur in the process of us translating it in a CAD model, sending it to the routing team who might get their routing tools wrong or their translation wrong. Uh, the deliveries on site, the guys on site erecting it. So all those are enough, we thought, to tell the story of misremembering. Okay. And there's a really interesting thing that you were talking about with the narrative 
and it's also the narrative of this building with its site mm. that we found um, with your Clerkenwell Close project as well. And I think that also links to what you're saying about how you build something mm. um, and also what you've been saying about monuments because of the way that that building plays off the, the nearby church. So, <laughs> so that's not really a question, but it's more... I'm going to have to pull a question out. No, 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 go we've on. got plenty, don't worry. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's your kind of use of historical reference is often, it's like definitely not a slavish historicism. And I guess if it, if it isn't that, and there's a kind of more complex thought process by how you reference history. I mean, like, I'm thinking like with Kirkamar Close, yeah. in some sense, like to me, it's a more classical building than if you yeah. represented the ornament Prop, like yeah. exactly yeah. as it would be because yeah. you've actually got a classical tectonic where you've yeah. got a stone trebated right. system yeah. Yeah. and so in some sense there's a much more truthful classicism yeah. not not that I'm branding as a classicist but like no, this no no don't worry that's uh, um, uh, where was but, I recently I was at an architecture foundation and uh, I think um, Alice Woodman was suggesting the same thing and uh, so mm. I was doing a talk there inviting me for certain purposes yeah there you're using a a historically kind of accurate tectonic in a way, although there's an innovation too yeah. with how you connect to the concrete. Well, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, and couldn't, couldn't be older. Trabiated <laughs> method of construction couldn't be older. Mm. Absolutely, but you're, you're right. There's uh, it's 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 got a it's got a contemporary some contemporary technology that allows it to exist today, as opposed to you know, even 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Yeah. And that's something interesting that we were wondering is that also in your other projects, your use of brick, it's very much how, it, how I guess, a brick is meant to be used as that's a zone right, bearing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, is that something yeah. that a sort of well, honest tectonic... The, the, yeah, the DNA in the office is, um, yeah, the architectonic, which sounds very traditional, but um, uh, modernist traditional. But actually, uh, I would argue is, um, uh, again, I think it will come up in the, in the, in the talk, um, is a traditional architectural architect's role all the way up to Winkelmann, so the neoclassical period. Uh, I.e., if you know your materials, the nature of your materials, their structural properties, uh, as well as their textural, visual properties, uh, all of those. And today we ha couldn't couldn't have more, uh, yeah. <laughs> and and we'll get more and more as time goes on, which is great. Yeah, and uh, you guys especially, educated today. Uh, uh, and people misunderstand the idea of postmodern condition uh, have got all the freedoms you could possibly wish for uh, so with that freedom you have the, the curse of having to know more and more <laughs> uh, to be able to be experts in yeah. that and then uh, compose those materials first of all in their, in their most basic uh, state so that might be something like a trabiated structure and then once you get more expert at it, play with that to make it um, uh, poetic. Yeah, because um, it was one of the things that we kind of we'd observed is that there's a there's a strong sense of you kind of trying to take control of the means of production, yeah. and ex and in some sense like your buildings often seem to be unique. Sim yeah. Like one of the simple moves is that you yeah. you expand the palette yeah. of what you're doing yeah. beyond what other people yeah. are doing. Well, well observed. That's very well observed. And why is that? It's, uh, uh, like your first question, the answer is going to be fairly pragmatic. It's because you, very quickly you realise in practice that you might um, come up with all sorts of lovely drawings and ideas uh, and uh, 
you, it dawns on you as you um, draw these and work with the design team and detail them uh, and then tender them. Those tender returns without fail all come out over budget. Uh, you quickly sit down again with the design team, the client who's super stressed, pulling pulling their hair out, uh, uh, doing what's called a value engineering exercise. Yeah. Uh, all the lovely stuff you've composed, and drawn, rendered, totally are the first things that get stripped away. And uh, it occurs to you that, blimey, my architecture is, is, is um, entirely dependent on those daft details that are all being stripped away. I say daft because they get stripped away, but the building still, <laughs> is still there. Mm. Uh, so what is that building at the end? Is it the, the original concept? Is my concept entirely contingent on these bits of stuff that vanished in the value engineering? Well, how can I design something that, um, that um, uh, it's impossible to strip away? So every element, you want to strip that away? The building won't stand up. Yeah. That's one way of looking at it. But at the same time, you, you, you stand back and say, well, why should I ever sit in a meeting with a client and have a quantity surveyor return a tender and look at the tender analysis and they're all over budget. I'm not going to do that again. So from the outset, I'm going to actually go to contractors and suppliers and subcontractors. I'm going to, I'm going to understand what the hell this building is going to be made of. Can its uh, structural material um, form be enough to define the architecture? If they turn around to you and say, actually, yes, but there's, a, there's a actually a more sensible way of putting this together, cheaper, quicker, mm. etc. Great. They'll, they're teaching you something because it's something you probably won't learn in a school of architecture. Highly likely you won't learn in a school of architecture. <laughs> uh, and if at the end of that, you end up together with a piece of architecture that's on budget, uh, then great. You've, you've created a bit of architecture that, uh, this is why I say pragmatically, yeah. and my God, it's on budget. It's made of materials <laughs> that can't possibly be um, pulled apart, yeah. value engineered, uh, because there's nothing left. Yeah, yeah like with the Clark and again, because you said Clark, well, Barrett's yeah. Grove, even even uh, Upper Street. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, ultimately, this isn't the single agenda of any building. Uh, as a, as a designer, you have to allow that to orbit your mind while all the other things are orbiting your mind, your historical references, mm. and then how those materials, the colours and textures, and you know, how they might be composed, the wonderful references and ideas that you might have before anything crystallises. And it's, it's, it's almost as pragmatic reasons that allow then the final reason for it to crystallise and that poetry to come to life. Otherwise, you just kill it, don't you? But that's exactly it. It seems like in, in making those pragmatic decisions where, you know, you, you strip out trades, you strip out program, oh. um, then that is actually freeing up space for you to do architecture in yeah. place of yeah, that. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I'm kind of, one question we had was, to date you've done it on, I guess, you know, Clarkmore, Barrett's Grove, they're kind of, I mean, I, you know, they're kind of reasonably high-end-ish projects, it seems. Um, and I'm kind of growth isn't... Uh, well, okay, there's... There, there might be in the... Um, there might be in the... There will be in the talk one other project. Barrett's Grove and Ada Street, for instance, on a really low-cost project. I don't know, they're, they're, they just turned out to be the clients... Uh, uh, well, by virtue of them being so spartan mm. in, in their interior, and I guess maybe their exterior... Uh, but still having some tactile, interesting tactile mm. details at the sort of human level. 
Uh, they ended up, because they were private sector, ended up selling for more yeah. than a standard developer build. Our original brief was, can you build it for about 25% less than standard developer yeah. fare? So really, you can... You, Housing associations could build that way. Well, so, that, that, so that was our question. <laughs> is, in in the spirit of you know the way you've say done Barrett's Grove or something yeah. like that, yeah. where would the limits of those kind of op- tectonic opportunities mm. take you? In How some sense, or I'm thinking also Clarkenwell Close. You you've put the mm. the load in the yeah. in the facade. Yeah. You freed the floor, and then yeah. it could become a very flexible space. Absolutely. Very, so know. that's that's yeah um, exactly. So Clarkenwell has that flexibility. Um, it isn't the cheapest way of building is more the Barrett's Grove and the Ada Street. Effectively, where you've got um, uh, a load-bearing, um, well, a superstructure with the insulation vapor barrier on the outside, and then um, uh, a rain screen of some description, whether that's brick or any other material. That is the cheapest method of construction. Uh, the next level is something like Clarkenwell where it's an excess skeleton with a, with a rain screen wall, 300 mil or so on the inside of that. Uh, the next level would be something like Upper Street, mm. which is high end, but that's, you know, the, the client there, their brief from the outset was, um, when they shortlisted all the architects, their brief was literally, can you give me a Daniel Lieberskin? And we said, well, you also don't literally want a Daniel Lieberskin because you're the higher Daniel Lieberskin. He said, no, no, Daniel Lieberskin is just expensive. <laughs> I just wanted, I wanted to look like we was, yeah. so we did some persuasion. <laughs> yeah. That seems really interesting to us because another thing that intrigued us um, that's kind of linked is the idea that with building type, you could go back to a type of building where um, people are much more they're living and they're working mm. is much more integrated mm. into one building and mm. I mean yeah. in your plug and weld building you're li- kind of living above the shop yeah. that's right well if you knock on the doors of people who live there they actually I think it's more than half work there so there's a jeweler on one floor a visual artist um, on another uh, some sort of consultant uh, for contracts sort of legal person on another uh, a writer and a uh, restaurant critic. Uh, yeah, anyway, I could go on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm and listing it. Yeah, and it seems I'm quite... giving you a list. <laughs> <laughs> it seems quite... Um, that That's quite a London thing yeah. as well. Yeah. And the but other thing... Coming is, back to Upper Street, I mean, those buildings that are your neighbours in Upper Street, that is yeah. actually their type, isn't it? Is it the living above the shop? Well, that's how, well, yeah, exactly. The Victorians built it like that. They, yeah. Despite the fact there's this Palladian facade, it's really just a um, party wall terrace where uh, the shop owners lived above. I guess one of the things we were kind of pondering is, is as a as an architectural gesture, mm. setting the program like that is that actually a very direct way of kind of improving people's quality of life in, in the sense that you're kind of stripping out a commute and all this kind of stuff. And you're, yeah, you're, yeah. I don't it's, know. It's, 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 um, it's yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, some people like that, some people Fair don't. Enough. Fair enough. I once stayed, I realised, um, I, I, I went, went uh, left the building, I started coughing, and I, I thought, why am I coughing? It's the first time I've left the building for about four <laughs> <Just> days. <laughs> <laughs> Breathing in pollen and God knows what. <laughs> London taxis and things yeah. like that, yeah. So, so maybe just carrying on the kind of line of thinking about Barrett's Grave and it's like the potential wider applicabilities of the of the kind of 
technology or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I guess one of the things we were kind of wondering is, whilst maybe your buildings on the face of it might seem quite unique if taken alone, mm -hmm. um, we were wondering if actually there might be something like the kind of development of a London pattern book, um, where... That's the whole point of Barrett's Grove, is uh, you'll see in the talk, oh God, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. It wasn't long after we started practice. I don't know how we got invited, but we got invited by um, an EU-funded programme for mass-produced housing. And it was before the financial crisis, and they were still determined to build as much as possible everywhere, including, of all places, Spain. They were convinced they weren't building enough. How can we build more and faster? And surely the answer is to build everything in a factory and, and cart it to site, which is sort of the answer. Uh, so we were amongst them, and uh, we thought, well, everyone's going to be reinventing the, um, the standard prefabricated housing on you know, a, a mm. unit on the back of a lorry yeah. and bolt it all together. And we don't want to do that. Um, seems a bit pointless. Everybody else is. You know, every generation does it. Uh, I think we can probably date it because Google was just beginning to sort of, you know, um, uh, be a useful tool. We thought, let's just Google every prefabricated product there is in Europe and catalogue the lot. We found, actually, that was, everybody knows CLT nowadays. So CLT was relatively new then, I guess. Um, but you could also, it was quite common in those days to have it have have um, services sandwiched in those panels on the walls and floors, mm. so plumbing, electrics, etc. Yeah. Uh, so that was CLT, but you could also do it in concrete. Uh, so what we found was, depending on which part of Europe you were in, they were either using concrete or timber, but in addition you could get obviously prefabricated uh, bathrooms, bits of kitchen, obviously window sets and door sets, and before you know it, you've actually got the entire kit apart that you can bolt together uh, and so we put a catalogue together and said, you choose the site in Europe and we'll tell you the closest um, suppliers of your kit of parts. So then we actually had a project and we thought, let's try and, um, you know, and, um, execute our idea. Unfortunately, uh, building schools of the future uh, uh, were swallowing up the, the small um, supplies of CLT yeah. that there were in this country. So CLT, instead of being something that should be really affordable, yeah. was actually ludicrously expensive. Came, um, so we couldn't use it. We, we ended up doing a scheme in block work and precast concrete panels. Uh, but the point of that was, coming back to your question, was is that, is that a model for, uh, for building just like Victorians and Georgians did, mass housing? these pattern books, um, blocks as it were, streets and streets of them. Uh, we thought, yes, it is, because actually, especially the Ada Street examples, where we learned that if you make it out of this load-bearing superstructure, that then just has insulation, a single ply of um, render on top of it, and the render is certified to go for 25 degrees from the horizontal. It can be the wall material, the window sill, the window reveal, the, the roof, and back down again. So you've suddenly got rid of your roofers and gutters and you know, window sills, etc. Yeah. Brings the construction cost down, brings the program down, uh, and you should be able to do streets and streets of this, this stuff. Uh, and then a few years later, Business Schools of the Future got scrapped, and you could say the government price of CLT came down, and that's when Barrett's Grove came along. Same sort of brief by a similar sort of developer. I want to build at 25% less than every other developer, so I think I've ever paid for the site. 
can you do that for me? And we said there are, there are you know, we've already thought about this, there are solutions to that. You, you, you can do it. They were a bit scared initially because it involved seeing the, the superstructures mm-hmm. in internal finish. Uh, but they, uh, yeah, when, when, when they sold for 25% more, they were um, very pleased. So you can imagine. There was a question about that actually. A lot of your buildings, maybe particularly the domestic ones, seem to favour timber as a kind of internal lining. Um, I wondered, yeah. is there like a particular pleasure with timber or what's the kind of yeah. affinity with that material? What is that? That's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, there's a number of answers to that, but the quickest one is, um, well, there's probably two. Um, we've done lots and lots of private houses and apartments, and a lot of those are all plasterboard, and everybody's interested in uh, you know, fairly minimal, perfect designed interiors, and it's not too difficult to do with plasterboard. But as soon as you then bring other materials up against that, especially oh, I would like a white, um, I'd like white wardrobes, a white kitchen, against my white plasterboard, white doors and white architraves, <laughs> all those materials are different. They behave differently. They'll never be the same white. You'll never stand it, and not unless you sort of squint your eyes. They'll never be the same white, and uh, uh, it's all very frustrating. And apart from that, uh, plasterboard. Um, within a week gets knocked and scratched and marked and uh, has to be filled, sanded, repainted regularly. And we thought, actually, there is a solution here. You could do the reverse, allow the cabinetry to become the walls. You know? So then you realize, actually, instead of a whole team of plasterers, petition guys coming in, putting the petitions up, plasterboarding, skimming, painting, and then the cabinetry guys coming in and putting up um, wardrobes, like hiding the plasterboard. Why not get rid of the plasterboard altogether and make your petitions out of the cabinetry? So you just have the cabinet makers come in and do that. And in which case, ah, that suddenly uh, gives you the perfect excuse to have full height doors without downstands and door heads and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, sliding doors, pivoting doors, you name it, etc. So it's slightly pragmatic. But uh, also, yeah. Uh, 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 Nothing wrong with being pragmatic. (laughs) Well, what it does is then gives you a nice domestic theme. In in the domestic architecture, your your superstructure is is doing the inhabitation of the entire floor floor plate, while actually those pieces of furniture, the wardrobes or the integrated doors, etc., are detached from that uh, and allow a sense of a free plan uh, uh, if you're there on your own and you like an open plan, that's great. Uh, but the day that somebody comes to visit and they want to feel secularised and separate, yeah. they can unfold doors or whatever and um, suddenly define the space a bit more. Uh, and it feels as if as well that there's a sense of durability with it. Yeah, exactly. And you knock a piece of wood, yeah. over, over time it, it just creates a pattern. Yeah. Those knocks are a bit of the history, aren't they? Yeah. Exactly, and there's the really nice, I mean, I've wondered if this is something that you've actively been pursuing in not only on your interiors with the timber, but on your exteriors, because I think there was something I read that you'd said about, we still enjoy Edwardian architecture, mm. and that's why we still like mm. those houses and those buildings. 
Well, um, I jokingly um, define what we do sometimes as lazy architecture. I, you know, we don't like doing vast amounts of details when we can get away with just one detail to do a number of things. And similarly with the materials you choose, if you can choose a material that's, that, that um, just looks after itself, mm. uh, doesn't have to be repainted, uh, cleaned, and all the rest of it, then great. So whether that's brick or stone as opposed to some other material that has to be sanded or whatever. So yeah, the interior is allowed to develop its own pattern and the same with the, uh, the exterior. Yeah. I was kind of wondering, so, I mean, sorry, to continue, to continue that kind of theme on materials, how much of the experimentation and playing with it are you doing in the office and how much of it are you doing in discussion with the quarry, the CLT contractor? Like where does that experiment take place? It's, well, you make it sound like it's one or the other. No, fair enough. It's all of that. It's all of that. And sometimes you have no idea until, you know, way, uh, and that's part of the problem with Clarkenwell, is that we had a, a, um, a, um, a case officer who's known us for many years and knows, or knew, uh, is well motivated. You know, in his words, we're, we're the good guys. Um, so he gave us quite a lot of leeway. We gave him um, a design that we said, look, it's stone. At the moment, we have no idea exactly what that finish is. Here are some photographs of uh, stone from the quarry, buildings that have been finished similarly, i.e. in just stone, what we understand to be natural finish. And here are some photographs from the quarry, but we're going to go, we're going to go visit the quarry and find out. Well, he gave us the approval on all of that. Unfortunately, he retired and none of that information got uploaded. Um, but yeah, it's not until we visited the quarry and, and the quarry mastered given us a clean cut block as a, as a sample or a column basically uh, for us to inspect and we looked at it and thought wow well that's you know very impressive big piece of stone but actually it looks like a pre piece of precast concrete and he's explaining it in a sense because um, limestone is used in concrete remember Portland um, cement is named after the quarry etc and you guys as architects um, specifies so rarely come to the quarry and understand limestone when it's freshly cut. You understand, um, you know, limestone now is concrete. So while we were looking around, we saw these master blocks that he just brought out of the quarry with all the other finishes on them. You know, the, the natural cleavage which shows the sedimentary layer with its fossils, etc., and quartz pockets, sawn, drilled, and they are fascinating to us because that's his process of bringing, extracting the stone. But actually, it's the natural material. Um, when a when a stonemason would actually receive clean cut blocks and, and, and then carve in, in quotation marks, natural. Yeah. Yeah. So the natural sample you see is probably plus or minus five millimeters, while in the quarry, what we saw was, was roughly plus or minus, um, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 mil. But once we told him, look, we actually want the natural, he was you know, delighted. He did go off on, on, on one and gave us plus or minus 300, <laughs> which we all found exhilarating, but obviously to our neighbours, that was a bit of a shock. Um, there lies our problem. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, interestingly, with neighbours and things like that, we're not going to go too far into that because I think you've probably talked about that yeah. enough. Um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, but, Something that I found really interesting um, in looking at all your projects is there seems to be moments where you can make them in the projects where it's viable, viable sorry, um, where you will take shared outdoor spaces or make shared outdoor spaces, uh, even if it's yeah. on a roof uh, or something like that. Uh, 
And um, it doesn't feel as if it's this sort of cut and dry sort of sustainability that you've been taught at uni kind of thing. Yeah, it feels yeah. something much more personal than that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think if you if you can, you should um, aim for it. Um, it's not every condition you're working in is conducive to that. Sometimes you do have clients who are behemoths who, who, who just steamroller any personal ideas. But we try not to work with those, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, we try, try hopefully, uh, to work with people who are... Who, who, you'd like to think they've picked us because they think we're going to give them, you know, in their mind, add value. It's that typical yeah. sort of triangulation where, for them, as a developer, they're going to make more money because we're adding them adding yeah. value. Uh, for us, uh, it, it keeps us sane for the period of that project. And uh, for occupants and people who live in the area, it, it gives them some delight as well. Yeah, and it, and it was interesting as well because in Karkamal, I think it's you, I've read that it's the first time you've used yeah. natural. Yeah, so there uh, it's a bit of an experiment. But ever since you know, uh, um, we've been required to, um, to to make what I call now biodiverse roofs as opposed to just sedum roofs, um, that's that's great. But in addition to that, uh, you have water attenuation. Uh, mm. uh, and the water attenuation can be then a sub-basement, which is effectively the size of a small swimming pool, depending on the size of your <laughs> roof, with all those pumps, yeah. uh, you know, the power, the, um, the energy used, as well as then, um, I mean, obviously the capital costs and the energy embodied in, in building that basement, but then the ongoing maintenance of all that kit. And didn't to us it may it didn't make much sense. Uh, it's not a very sustainable argument. It's mostly driven by the idea that we shouldn't be putting the the, the water into the sewage system and bursting the um, yeah. sewage every time there's heavy rain. So it's not really anything to do with sustainability. But if you allow this, that Venn diagram <laughs> to overlap, then it becomes a sustainability issue. And if you can if you can demonstrate it can be done mm. with trees and root balls, then great. Yeah. yeah. So we had um, one question which was about, um, it, it's kind of based on a little passage from that Steen Eiler Rasmussen book about London, that book London, The Unique City, yeah. and he kind of characterises London as being quite different from a lot of other European cities in that London is perhaps got a lot of private capital, private wealth, but also a lot of kind of individuals who are free to do what they want, where in comparison to like a European city where there's typically been a monarch or some kind of, and, yeah. and that there's less possibility for free architectural expression in the other condition. Mm. I was wondering whether you thought that kind of character, I mean, that was written in 1930, so, mm. um, but I was wondering whether that characterization is something you kind of, you witness yourself or, or you know, how easy is it to express yourself architecturally in London? <laughs> I guess that's a question. Well, I was at uh, a, a, a debate at the University of Arts the other day with, um, uh, with, a, with a panel that could planner and um, somebody works for a think tank, and it was it was the the the, um, the theme was beauty. Can beauty be legislated in planning? And the head of planning of, of that borough, uh, their conclusion was that um, architects should be designing and then put the design to um, to the people f to decide. Yeah. Uh, and at the other end of the spectrum uh, was the think tank where they were literally placing electrodes on people's heads, giving them pictures of streets and buildings and saying, do you like that street or this street? Do you like that facade or this facade? 
and then putting data together saying, well, everybody likes Georgian architecture and Georgian streets, tree-lined streets. I thought, well, actually, that's sort of where we're heading at the moment. Uh, there's less freedom and people, uh, especially, you know, I could, uh, I could characterize it as the, uh, the desire not to have experts involved anymore. Yeah. We've had enough of experts. <laughs> Let the people decide. So there's, uh, if, you do, if you go that direction, there's definitely less freedom. I guess particularly with things like Scruton taking over in the housing yeah, commission yeah, and things yeah. like that. There's obviously clearly a mood for it at the moment. Mm. Whether it's got any real traction, I don't know. But if there's a mood for that, that makes it harder when you go to planning in other areas. Uh, uh, it's for you, it, it just makes it a little bit harder. It used to be easier, but yeah, it makes it a little bit harder. I mean, because it seems strange though, because London's such a kind of, it's such a mixture of cultures in terms of who's here. Like in our studios, there's people from dozens of countries. And it just seems really weird that there isn't a corresponding pluralism in architectural expression to match the people who actually live here. Yeah, but, but. That's, that, I think that's the current political mood, isn't it? Mm. I totally agree with you. I, that was the conclusion of my five-minute contribution, was <laughs> don't be afraid of diversity. There's plenty of examples in, in cities like I was choosing Amsterdam, I think, in the 90s, perhaps. Uh, where they were master planning and showing diversity. Diversity is possible on streets. Well, literally every building is different. Mm. Uh, so don't be afraid of that. Uh, in fact, that is where we should all be heading. That's the reality of um, that we're living in. So why the hell should we be afraid of in buildings? It's a shame I didn't. I didn't bolt that onto today's talk. Well, because <laughs> I mean, it's one of the things. I guess you've got people like Habraken and. Hertzberger and people like that who are kind of doing this kind of open architecture where they're kind of almost just building an armature mm. um, and I was kind of wondering what you thought about the what was the viability of that approach as opposed yeah. to a fully resolved thing well it's, uh, it's it comes from a different place mm. uh, I've got no problem with that at all because um, it's performing a different purpose as well um, yeah it's a difficult one because um uh, it's rare that, for instance, if we look at Hertzberger, uh, I'm not even sure whether it worked entirely um, in the social housing programs that he had at that time. Does it work? It's a, it's a great idea. I mean, I like the idea of this skeleton to be inhabited by uh, and, and defined by the people that, that, that live there. But I mean, it's just funny because I'm looking at like Clarkenwell Close and I'm thinking, yeah. in some sense, there's no reason that couldn't go that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's got a clearly yeah. defined use at the moment. Yeah. But it's also got nothing stopping its use, if I think. No, I mean, the whole idea is that it can be cleared out, certainly internally. Mm. Uh, the only thing that stops the, the outside changing is, um, is uh, it's in a conservation area, and then whatever you do on the outside literally change, um, you know, signage or mm. something that you have to ask for conservation area consent. In any case, the conservation officers want to demolish it, so <laughs> perhaps they'll be happy with it to be changed. <laughs> so hopefully not. <laughs> well, I'm kind of aware that we've asked a lot of questions about London because obviously most of your projects are in London. But um, one project which was kind of I was curious about simply because um, I'm from Cornwall uh, oh, and it was yeah, built yeah. Um, very close to where I grew up was the farmhouse you did quite early on, I think. Oh. 
The, the Crowen, Crowen. Oh yeah, no, that's um, only recently finished. Okay, my mistake. Yeah. Um, but I was. He's <laughs> too interested in where yeah. it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where, where, where are you from? So then? I'm from Penzance. Yeah, it's not far. Um, sure. I've probably cycled yeah. past this house quite a few times actually. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was, really? Yeah, no, I used to cycle up this lane. <laughs> Blimey. Um, but one of my kind of curiosities yeah. was, as I'm cycling around these lanes in mm. Cornwall, mm. I would very rarely see a red rebus sign. Are <laughs> um, you sure if we had a red rebus sign? Fine, but like, uh, it, it seems to me like whilst yeah. there's building happening down yeah, there, yeah, yeah. Not, not architects not are not yeah. really going out into more peripheral places like yeah. that. And I'm wondering yeah. your experience of doing that yeah. and kind of. Yeah, it's a shame. You're right, but I mean, you'll you'll. I mean, are you? Uh, is your family still down there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'll know that. Um, uh, I mean, I think Cornwall is probably, is it the poorest um, county? It is indeed. It's one yeah. of the only places that receives like the same kind of funding that you get in southern Italy yeah. in the UK. And, yeah. and you can tell that. Uh, I mean, sometimes you're driving around certain little valleys, um, ex-mining communities, and you, you, you look at them and you think, if, if they're all built, they're, they're, they're more often than not they are roughly the same period, but some of them have got extensions and multicolored bits and pieces on them but sometimes you look at them and you think I mean that that is essentially any Mediterranean um, <laughs> town that's down at heel but because we're on holiday in the Mediterranean it's all very lovely but they suffer exactly the same problems so mm. their economy is gone and it looks lovely and it's great for tourists in the summer but actually people really struggle there and they they're holding down maybe two three jobs so the, the, the roofer is also a policeman and uh, or, uh, and especially in, in down the centre of, of Cornwall, where all those minor communities were, the, the, the economy has completely vanished, really. Yeah. And you go down those high streets and it's endless pound land and, and budget shops, and the money's all in the periphery, and often it's not just tourism, but people have retired, gone down there, taken their money from London or wherever, uh, into those peripheral towns, like Penzance and St Ives, etc. Uh, and that's... I'm often told by locals they get bored within about three years of the same view and want to move back and that's why there's a high turnover in those houses uh, for other romantics. I guess it's just... I'm not sure I'm answering your question. No, well, it's kind of something because, like, I'm aware that the the common answer is that it's to do with resources and it's to do with perhaps not having enough money or access to it. But but there's there's so many examples, whether it's like Doshi in India or Caesar in Portugal, where not having large amounts of money yeah, is clearly yeah. not a total obstacle to building no, good architecture. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, if that's a question, no, you're right, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be at all. In fact, I'm always appalled by sometimes the budgets you... I, uh, you see something on the RBA jury system. Any, any uh, project that comes in has to tell you how much they've spent and then break it down per, per square metre. And sometimes, I mean, okay, housing, private housing, if somebody wants to spend that much per square metre then great but then schools come in and they've got the same budget as some of those luxury private houses and you think what on earth has happened there mm. that's justified or no one's policed the spending when really it could be done for about a third of the amount uh, I think the discipline should be to start off with as little as possible and certainly on the Cornwall project uh, uh, the discipline there was look there's no way we can possibly spend uh, the same amount that we might be spending in, in Oxfordshire or wherever uh, uh, so, see what we can do. Um, and it was interesting. It was a listed building. It's um, it's a very very posh vicarage of you know, 150 odd years ago, 
um, that, a that the Church of England um, had decided they wanted rid of. And they initially leased it to a farmer, a local farmer, who, um, who decided to turn it into an egg packing plant, despite the fact it was listed, knocked through the ground floor to get a giant conveyor belt in. And this is actually, this is his retirement. He was retired uh, in those days, so this is pre-Edwina Curry. Uh, one thing to keep you occupied in retirement and get an income was put a sign outside saying you'll take anybody's eggs. So if people had chickens and they couldn't eat all the eggs, you'd them drop off. them off and he'd sort them out. So Amazing. hence his conveyor belt. And him and some friends would sit on the conveyor belt and just sort out the egg. So it destroyed the, um, the inside of this, um, I would say, significant amount of this <laughs> building. And nobody knew about it, nobody had any idea. Uh, so when we came to um, it, it all overgrown, it was like a fairy story, overgrown with brambles, ivy going through the windows. Um, and there was so much ivy that we actually, the first task was to remove it all so we could actually survey the building. And of course, it's that classic thing, the ivy was holding up the building. Mm. Um, so there's three buildings, outbuildings there that, that no one had known about because they were so overgrown. And once we removed the ivy, they all collapsed. Exactly. Just, I got a phone call saying, oh, they all collapsed oh, while I was in London, and uh, a great listed building that's collapsed. I've got enough trouble already. Um, so yeah, we had to reconstruct them stone by stone from what photographic surveys we had and some measured surveys. Uh, and then do the minimal amount necessary to basically say, look, here's how the original Victorian vicarage might have been and here are some of the new interventions and they are as, as simple uh, and pared back as possible and mm. budget will allow and you balance that. Did the egg packing farm mean that you could make more interventions than you would have though? We didn't take advantage of that, I think we just froze, froze the condition. <laughs> Hence one of those spaces, just this big double height room where you can see where the floors would have been. We left the steels that the farm had put in exposed. Uh, but yeah, we didn't take that much advantage of that. I think the budget actually didn't allow for much mm. more. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I think that's probably um, a really good time to um, draw our kind of conversation to a close. Um, thank you so much for coming to speak to us. Um, yeah. It's been a real pleasure. And um, Good luck with it. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. I do hope you enjoyed it. Um, you know, we set this podcast up two years ago as a way of connecting with our students on their commutes and uh, uh, other activities when we noticed that they were listening to long form audio. Now, of course, um, not all of you listening, as we know from our statistics, are former students or even current students of ours. And we've been kind of blown away by the potentials of the podcast and the interest that people have shown in it. And we're very appreciative of that. I think it's important to bring it back to that fundamental thing, which is that we are a school of architecture and these are the conversations about architecture that we have here, not just myself, but the other members of the team. And as you've heard today, an incredible bunch of students. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to sign off again. Please do leave your comments. Please do leave your reviews. All of those things appreciated. And I'd like to thank Kate and Dan for both inviting and hosting Amin Taha so, so wonderfully. And to the register team, Matt Wells, Matt Phillips, Christoph Luder and Laura Evans, who, of course, co-produces the series of lectures and podcasts that we run as part of Register. I do hope you join us next time. Thank you. Thank you.